1: No purchase necessary, void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: It's the Ulti Sport Podcast. Discuss Felix Rosenquist's Formula E title credentials and ask if the Birmingham Supercream really could return. <laughs> E buzzed back into life in Marrakesh in Morocco last week, Felix Rosenquist's victory catapulting the Mahindra driver into the thick of the title fight, in fact to the front of the title fight. I'm your host, Ed Straw, joining me to look back at another eventful Formula E weekend. First is Autosports Formula E correspondent, Scott Mitchell. You're looking a little bit better now after apparently being a bit worse for wear in Morocco, Scott.
2: Oh, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me on an Autosport podcast, Ed.
0: Yeah, I was... Uh, it's the nicest I was, thing I've said to anyone on an oh, Autosport yeah. podcast.
2: I had the, I had the flu, uh, I was a bit ill in the week. Building up to, to Marrakesh. And when I got out there, I was actually really good. I got off the plane, I felt really good. And then over the course of Thursday and then Friday in particular, I deteriorated. And there was a point on race day after qualifying where I was just sort of slumped in my chair in the media centre, thinking. My hotel's over the road. I could just go back over there and have a bit of a nap because I, I just I felt absolutely terrible. But I'm back now and, uh, and and all good,
0: ready for the podcast. And heroically covered the race. My second guest is Anthony Rollinson. Now I'm told that one of the big talking points of the weekend was you cementing your status as a super aficionado. Can you give me a little bit
1: more detail about this? <laughs> I do like a bit of soup. <laughs> a bit. I'm told boiling <laughs> a bit. Soup is good. Well, the things it would have helped Scott if Scott had, had some, you know, chicken soup for the soul. It might have helped him <laughs> helped him through the weekend rather than uh, having to rely heavily on drugs, unfortunately. But um, yeah, the soup was good in the hotel. Yeah, there's only nice. two bowl rollins. Yeah, yeah, small, small bowls, small bowls. It must be so said. so good. You had to have it twice. Yeah, yeah. I can I can heartily vouch for the soup in in the hotel. at Whatever it was, the Marrakesh Kenzie Co- Club, Quasi Club? Kenzie Club, Club Hotel. Yeah. The soup yeah. was good. I'm yeah.
2: not sure about anything else. I've had enough tagine to last me a lifetime.
0: <laughs> well, when we get to the point where we diversify into a soup-based podcast, we know who the uh, who the fixture guest will be. Now, getting away from uh, watery matters. Scott, Felix Rosenqvist driver to victory. It's a spectacular one. That late pass and Sebastian Boemi was uh, was the highlight. And we know how good Felix is as a driver. So does what happened there prove Mahindra Package is good enough to give him a shot at the title? He is up front in the points, after all.
2: Yeah, I think um, it, it might sound a bit obvious to say the person leading the championship is, uh, is a title contender. I think he's actually more than that. At the moment, I'd put him as title favourite. Uh, he's had two wins in three races. One of them was inherited. What was really impressive for me is that In Hong Kong, he admitted he wasn't up to the right standard. He was struggling with breaking. He wasn't particularly confident or comfortable. But they've worked really hard on that. And they were nowhere, relatively speaking, by his standards in practice in Marrakesh. But they regrouped did the job in qualifying and you know the old cliche is you know you win the championships on your bad day well he won the race on what started out as a bad day you don't have a lot of time to recover in Formula E so the nature of the win hunting down boemi, I've said in my report in Autosport Magazine this week he's out Boemi Boemi in Marrakesh which uh, is, is the first time bohemi has been beaten on merit so the manner of the win to me was more impressive than just, just the fact that he won again that to me properly put himself there as the guy to beat this season now.
1: One observation I'd make actually just from a slightly less expert perspective than yours is that he looks very comfortable in the car um, because Formula E cars generally are quite cumbersome to drive, they're heavy at the back as we all know in sort of road, road tyres, grippy road tyres but still road tyres, he seems to be sort of drifting the car quite nicely and he, that, that, that view you have sometimes of drivers when they are very comfortable in their machine, in whatever Formula, they suddenly look confident and, and easy with it, he's, he's definitely got a bit of that about him at the moment.
2: Yeah, that was what that was one of the hallmarks of Boemi mean, last two seasons really, obviously he didn't win the title last year but… When he was on song, when the car was working, it was just everything fit. It flew flowed together really nicely, and that's what Rosenqvist was lacking in Hong Kong. He was very quick there, and as I say, qualified on pole and he he won the second race, but only after spinning at the first corner and then lucking into it when Mortara spun and then App got disqualified. And one of the things I think that was particularly impressive about the way he he got back going was Dilbagil, the team principal for Mahindra, told me on the fr- on the Friday that. This was a circuit, Marrakesh, that you need to be on the limit, and Rosenfist looked more like a driver capable and comfortable of taking that car to the limit in, in Marrakesh than he did in Hong Kong.
0: How about the Mahindra package, the powertrain? Where does that stand in terms of its of its raw performance and its race performance? Obviously, it's good, but is it up there? On pace, Yeah, definitely. For, for pace, pace and
2: efficiency as well. You, it's the killer combo in, in Formula E. But the fact that he was able to, to live with Buemi and Sandberg in the first stint and the fact that he was able to turn a two second deficit to Buemi into basically passing him earlier than Rosenquist even thought he was. Rosenquist was gearing up for a, an even later race pass. And then he just got so close to Bohemi a few laps from the end, he just, well, here's my chance, I'm I'm, I'm going for it. So to when given that's been the benchmark powertrain for the last two seasons, I think that says everything you need to know about the potency and the efficiency of the Mahindra powertrain that Rosenquist was able to beat Boemi at his own game in Marrakesh. It was
1: a good racing move as well wasn't it? It was a good sort of you know proper motor racing if you know what I mean it was, it was good to see.
2: Yeah he reckons it wasn't very hairy but when you actually watched it, I it, looked, at, it. it looked pretty yeah. like on the limit you know yeah. controlling the slide over yeah. the
0: bump and, and getting it done. In fairness to Boemi he did reckon he would have had a much better chance of hanging on for victory had he been able to deploy the fan boost. Yeah uh, Rosenquist I put that to Rosenquist because I spoke to Felix after I spoke to Seb
2: and Rosenquist was having none of it. He reckons that if he'd been rebuffed on that attempt, he had enough in his pocket to get him again. But I think Boemi's logic was, had fan boost worked when he tried to, to make it work? And for people who aren't aware, just to briefly summarise, basically Buemi had a water pump failure before the start of the race, which meant the car he was supposed to use first ended up being used second and vice versa. But they'd programmed the fan boost to run in the car that he ended up using first, and you can't use a fan boost in the first half of the race, which meant when he went to use fan boost... Uh, to defend from Rosenfist, it was only then when he tried to use it that they realised, oh, we've not reset it to be used in this car. Um, and in that split second where he had to gather his thoughts and go, oh, now I'm going to need to defend, Rosenfist had already nicked up the inside. So I think Boemi's logic was, if I keep him behind there in Formula E, you only normally you only really get one proper chance to attack because obviously you use so much energy and it's so close and competitive that you can't really afford to use much unnecessarily um but i think that in that in that situation when we sort of banking on that being rosenfist one attempt and felix's logic was actually i had a bit more in the tank that wasn't even my attempt to go for the lead i just did it because i was really quick he was gearing up to he was saving energy to go for it even harder
0: later on now scott you mentioned that rosenfist you think now is probably title favorite now pre-season your title favorite was lucas degrassi the apt Audi driver three races in quarter of the season he's got grand total of zero points. The car performance has been there, but what's gone so badly wrong? Uh, It's a lot of small details.
2: I I suggested to Alan McNish that on the... Team principal. Yeah, team team principal of Audi on the Sunday that it would be very simplistic to suggest the car's fast but fragile. And he said, yeah, he intensely disagrees with that suggestion that it's fast but fragile because App's cars run fine. Lucas is just having a lot of really bad luck. And if you look at the various races, you know, they they at one in Hong Kong and then lost it for a silly human error, filling in the effectively the scrutineering card wrong. And uh Lucas's car ran faultlessly in free practice one and free practice two. Both cars worked fine and then one car broke in qualifying and the other car broke in the race and he's had he had different problems in, in the race. He had a BMS error in Hong Kong which you know that could be a powertrain fault that's kicked that in or it could have been a battery failure we don't know because they're a bit shady at uh, at revealing that sort of information so I think I don't know maybe I'm giving them a bit too much credit when I say that it just seems just like bad luck but I kind of think that it is bad luck when one side of the garage is running absolutely fine it's kind of like in Formula One how many times have you seen teammates that one side of the garage has bad luck and then supporters of the other driver sort of say, oh, well, you know, it's because they're favouring this person or
0: something like that. Well, let's try another not necessarily so simplistic explanation. Obviously, when there is some things going wrong, whether it's finger trouble or some administrative errors, can any of that be ascribed to the kind of greater integration of Audi into the app team? Is there inevitably a little bit of a disturbance and it's going to take the team a few races to settle down? I'm or not, could we dismiss I'm, I'm
2: not sure. I, I, I think just because if you look at... This is the thing. On the app side of the garage, it's been fine. And it's Daniel that's got a new race engineer, for example. Lucas has still got the same race engineer that he's had the last... You know, in his title winning season and and before that. So, the on the, the more stable side of the garage is the one having the problem. So, I, I think... I think it's just a, you know, it looks terrible on paper because he's got zero points from three races, but it's actually a lot of small details that have sort of conspired to to make the picture look worse than it is. I think given the pace that that, that car is still the quickest, I'm 100% adamant. The car, on race pace? Yeah, on race pace, it's still the quickest. And in, in Marrakesh as well, on one lap pace as well, they were one and two in, in, in free practice when everyone turned it up to 11. So I'm still I'm still convinced it's the quickest car. The, the problem is that then they're not threading everything together.
1: I think if and when they do, it will come together very stylishly. One amusing little aside uh, after the race, I mentioned to Nelson Piquet that um, the, the trouble that Lucas has been happen- ha- having this season so far, he just, he just said, yeah, he deserves it. So there's absolutely no love lost between those two Brazilians.
2: Yeah, they've not been on track rivals for about two and a
0: half
1: years. That, that rivalry go. got
0: massively played up in
2: season one, didn't it? Yeah, I wish I'd been there for it. I'm gutted. That's one of the biggest thing I missed out on in season one, I think. There's
1: something there. There's some, there's some real needle. Certainly on Nelson's side, I haven't actually spoken to Yeah, there's a lot of people Lucas suggesting, it, but... I
2: think, in season one that... It was played up, it was made more theatrical for the benefit of the championship fight. Absolutely no way was it just for narrative. I think there is a personal thing between the two of them. That's what we
0: like, we like some rivalries. Now, one driver, Scott, who wasn't at the forefront in Morocco, who was in Hong Kong, was Eduardo Matara. He almost won in uh, in Hong Kong before uh, throwing it away. But it does seem that there were some positives about what Motara was doing. There was a bit of a stealth, strong performance there.
2: Oh, he was still mega in Marrakesh in the race. Um, and the performance of that car was mega in Marrakesh. The, the problem is this time, unlike in uh, Hong Kong, where he qualified near the front and took the lead when Rosenfist spun and then did the job from the front, he made a mistake in qualifying this time. Um, one of the big things I think you see from rookies in Formula E is a quite varying qualifying performances that's where the inconsistency is you either get driving the cars and you're mega in the race or you're very good at putting them on the limit and you struggle in races and it sort of fluctuates a bit um so he made a mistake in qualifying so he's coming through from the back but he was still on course to finish seventh at the very least in that race and then it just unraveled for him just as it was bunching up there was lopez heidfeld engel and mortara Mortara's Venturi teammate Engel was in a battle with Heidfeld. I'm not really sure what happened between them because the replay, the camera was a bit weird. Um, but I just noticed that there was like a second and a half between the four of them. And I was thinking, oh, this is about to get quite tasty. I hope we see some pictures of this. And then about 10 seconds later, I looked and thought, oh, mate, I must have got that wrong. Because now the gap between Lopez and the guys behind is like 20 seconds on the timing screen. So I must have got that wrong. And then about half a second later, like the TV cameras switched to Engel and Heidfeld in the wall and Mortara limping past them with with damage. So it it all just it all just got away from Mortara, really. Engel and Heidfeld had their own little set too. Mortara got massively out of shape, trying to avoid them under braking. And I don't know at what point he hit the wall or whether it was against his own teammate's car, but it just ended badly, basically. The race was actually looking a lot stronger. There was a point in that stint where he was about three or t- four attempts a lot faster than, than Bohemi out front and he wasn't using any extra energy. So that car, much like the Mahindra, is very quick and it's also very efficient.
0: Well in fact it was a race okay. in which there was plenty of incident. We also saw the the Daniel Apt, almost called him Christian Apt, uh, obviously is his touring car star father. Yeah, Daniel Apt and Alex Lynn had their their early clash that led to Apt being penalised, which is another another blow for LD. The replays of that weren't brilliant, but Apt was blamed for it. What did you make of that moment?
2: Uh I'm really not sure. I mean, I I spoke to Alex Lynn about it on the Sunday and when I spoke to him I'd I'd seen it a couple of times, I'd seen a couple of replays and I thought definitely App's fault way too sort of aggressive and ambitious, particularly at the start of lap two of a Formula E race where, you know, you win the race in the you like, know I mean obviously you win the race in the closing stages, that's when the checkered flag is, but you win it in the second half of the race. The first half is just about keeping yourself in the game and it was just a bit needless. And then I've sort of seen it again and I'm not sure. I don't know whether McNish tells me that he'd have done the same thing. He would have lumped up the inside because of the run he had. But I don't know. Maybe alex, Lynn turned in a bit, but alex I, I still was quite think
1: punchy wasn't he He that afterwards that he'd, he'd clearly been taken off, and there was there a no need for it he said he basically um was just used to enable um just just to, he was shunted off effectively he said and, and um, He was quite quite angry about the whole thing. He was was pretty hopping after the race.
2: Yeah, there was a bit of a confrontation in the media pen afterwards. Lynn went up to APT and just saw him there and just spotted an opportunity to straight out of the box just like confront him. Just say like, "What are you playing? You can't do things like that." Daniel was just sort of trying to justify, give his point of view, and then I just. I just really enjoyed watching Antonio de Deco- Antonio Felix da Costa just standing there watching the whole thing with a brilliant grin on his face. He was just lovely. He had like a front row seat, and he was probably the
1: probably the highlight of his afternoon. <laughs> I said one thing to Alex that you can put this down to sort of learning in your your rookie season. He said, "No, I just got taken off. It's not about learning how to race again. I just got taken off the circuit."
0: Well, it's good to see there's still confrontations going on in Formula E. That's uh, it's been good value for that uh, in in recent times. Uh, you also mentioned Lopez, there, Jose Maria Lopez, back in in, in Dragon in place of uh, Neil Yarni. He was a bit of a star at the weekend.
2: Yeah, I, <laughs> trying to find a logical reason for it is really difficult because that team was nowhere in Hong Kong, like not even just last, just l- miles off the pace. Yarni left um, because he was like, I don't fancy this for the rest of the season. He got lapped in both races on a not a massively long lap as well. Um, so that just shows how much difficulty they were having. What was amazing was not so much that I mean he put it in super Bowl, which is just that car looks so far from the top ten, let alone the top five in Hong Kong. So that was amazing in itself. And he reckons a radio communication problem was the reason he slipped back in the second stint because he just didn't know what energy he was he was at or, or or sort of what his targets were. So that sort of compromised his race, but he was just so far ahead of Jerome D'Ambrosio and Jerome is a guy who established himself in the first two seasons as one of the stars of Formula E, a guy who sort of belied his not anonymous reputation in of series and Formula One, but sort of like a quiet reputation, not one of the stars. Um, and now he's looking really average. Like in one weekend, like Pichito's come back. First weekend, he's not driven the car since the summer. He's had a day and a half, two days of simulated prep, and he's just absolutely knocked it out of the park. To Lopez said that we need to wait a couple more races to actually see if this was a one-off. One thing to say about Marrakesh is it's quite similar to Valencia in the, in the sense that. It, Compared to other Formula E circuits, obviously it's semi it's semi-permanent venue, it's a smoother circuit, it's more purpose-built. So it's not quite the same, so the setup um, difficulties and challenges aren't the same as they are in, say, Hong Kong, where Dragon really struggled. So let's wait and see if it's actually real. But whether it's real or not, Lopez did a much, much better job of extracting this sudden spike in performance than, than D'Ambrosio, who's been at that team since the very beginning.
1: One well, interesting thing you just mentioned there about radio comms, is something I picked up on, is how... Um, sketchy the radio comms seem to be at formally I think partly because it's a built environment all the time and it seems to be a particular issue between drivers and their engineers because they need so much information all the time with battery management and energy management it seems to be something that's come up in a way that I haven't encountered in, in other race series
2: yeah I mean someone like Sam Bird for example is talking to his engineer pretty much the entire lap asking for various bits of information. It's absolutely key because there's much greater restrictions on what the driver knows and what the teams are given and stuff like that. So uh, constant communication is absolutely crucial. Uh, some drivers don't talk back to their engineers, but they're always being fed uh, fed information or vice versa. Like As long as there is some kind of flow of information one party is getting what the other party is trying to tell them and then, then then that's a that's a key part of the formula
0: well, we've talked a lot about on track but off track it was also a big weekend Anthony it's the first weekend for Formula E's first title sponsor ABB it's a robotics and tech giants what does this deal mean what can you tell us about it and is there a reason for fans of Formula E to to be interested in it or is it just a just another sponsorship name to to
1: learn I think it's quite an interesting one because over the years you see sponsors come and go from race series but i think um if if one were being generous or even just accurate actually this is probably uh, a reasonably genuine alignment between Formula E's ambitions as a series which is you know predicated on sustainability and, and climate change and you know being a green series if you like and ABB's own clearly stated ambition which is to uh one of their prime business goals is to de- develop fast charging and charging for heavy vehicles in particular and i gather they're world leaders in this particular field so charging for Buses on light transport networks and stuff like this is absolutely what they do. So fast charging, of course, for electric vehicles, like you can fill, like you fill with fuel that sort of time. Absolutely, rather than being plugged the, in for. Yeah, the interesting point about this is that um, rather than just pushing battery technology, charging technology is also very significant because if if battery technology is proving still to be difficult to develop in terms of one great big single technological leap. Well, at least if you can charge them faster, then it makes the existing technology technology work better. So people aren't having to wait, you know, an hour to, to recharge their Tesla or, or whatever it is. So there is there does seem to be a genuine synergy, and I hate that word, but a synergy between between um, the title sponsor brand and uh, Formula E's own ambitions.
0: Synergy obviously is is one of those dangerous words. So are we going to actually Alignment see? Is another one. Well, are, are we going to see some, That's another good one. Yeah, are we going to see some genuine interaction beyond just? paying some money to do stuff are, are ABB going to be working with formulary on, on projects getting involved technically taking information
1: how, What how's it actually going to work in that, terms that, of that hasn't those been, synergies
0: being active should we say rather than just advertising blurb if you that, like that,
1: that hasn't been spelled out yet doesn't mean it's not happening or being talked about um, I think for a company like ABB Having a race series like Formula E to sort of promote your brand and activate, I think is the word, another one of those words that gets used by marketeers, to activate your brand um, is probably very powerful because as we as we are increasingly seeing, Formula E is drawing more and more manufacturers towards it. And anybody who's active in this field of sustainable technology, uh, green green car technology, green vehicle technology is, is being drawn almost magnetically towards, um, that's a pun, isn't it, but almost magnetically towards Formula E. And I think it just seems to be a space where manufacturers like this need to be and want to be and show their products. Um, your specific point about whether ABB will have something to show, I don't know yet. But, you know, it's a five-year partnership deal for a significant amount of money. So they're going to want to use that rather than just showing their brand at races.
2: Influence is an annoying word that suddenly cropped up as
0: well. There was someone. Are you a Formula E influencer, oh, There was Scott?
2: someone walking around in the, in the pit lane. I saw a picture of it on Twitter. Someone walking around with a T-shirt that on the back said "Influencer Manager. So presumably he was just looking after a YouTuber. What a ridiculously like grand title! I don't know who's given them that, but that it's just nonsense, isn't it? I, I imagine if I imagine if my if I was introducing this podcast as joining me to look back at another eventful Formula E weekend is Autosport's Formula E influencer Scott Mitchell. I mean, I am enough of an idiot. <laughs> and then, like as it is, I don't. Like, you don't need a title to make people have that. I want people to find that out for
1: themselves. Yeah, there's an interesting point here, isn't there? If you're the manager of an influencer, who's got the more influence? The influencer or the, or the influencer what manager? What came? Like
2: what came first? Yeah, exactly. The influencer or
1: the influencer manager? Yeah. There's a
0: whole separate podcast in this it particular is. debate, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, we'll save that one for a for a rainy day. But it, it it does sound like this sponsorship deal. There's reason to keep an eye on it and and things that might happen because it's all part of the. The kind of grand Formula E plan, I guess, isn't well, it? The fact they've got a five-year commitment for a series that you know, I think plenty of us were sceptical about how long it would survive for, and in fact, it was seven, shaking seven in the years, first season. So uh, it's
1: twenty, yeah. I think S- you're right, seven yeah. years. Because I think I I've, heard, seven years, though, I've right?
0: heard, you know, you hear,
2: you hear some figures band around. I've heard somewhere between fifteen and twenty million yeah. euros for a season, which yeah. works out at. I don't know, what's that, a, a push, uh, an upper ceiling of sort of 140, 40 million euros for a series that has really uh, money. Uh, spent, yeah. is, well, it's, it owes a lot of money. Yeah. Like it really needs to start balancing the book. So something like this is going to be quite key. But I think one thing that's quite key to point out as well is we don't really know how many races on the Formula E calendar are paying to be there. Mm-hmm. But that's actually only about one race a season that if you're getting 10 15 million euros off of this title company that that's all it is so if they're only say they're getting let's be generous and say three quarters of the races are paying to be there which i think is probably a bit too generous then like you know where do you get the shortfall for the other three races that you're paying for and that's even if you're doing that so like this is a very good starting point it's the first fia single seater series to have a title sponsor and formerly made sure in their contract with the FIA to begin with that they would have this option further down the line now they've pulled it off very good news it's only a starting point it would be silly to think that this is sort of the
1: the immediate solution to sort of quite a greater sort of financial hold that they need to fill I think it's very easy to be cynical about brand partnerships or title sponsorships whatever you want to call them because we've all grown up in the year of having seen you know tobacco companies with nowhere else to spend their cash plaster it all over Formula One teams for for decades obviously that's stopped um, and that's no longer the case but You know, drinks companies now, there aren't many places where they can advertise, so there's a lot of alcohol in in Formula One. This doesn't seem to be like that in in that regard. It seems to be a company that actually wants to align itself with a race series because it likes the general environment. And that's very different from being the last refuge for... a, a. sort of tainted industry if you like that, that is a little bit toxic in, in the wider world and therefore will just spend its money in motorsport this isn't it's not that kind of deal.
0: Now there's mention of uh, of races there and Anthony there was some talk about a Birmingham street race being revived for Formula E is that something we should be getting excited about as a realistic prospect it's been a long time since there's been a, a genuine street race in the in the UK.
1: Well it's Scott's story to all, all credit to him for, for digging that one up. Um, it appears there's, there's quite a lot of talk about about it I don't know exactly how Fixed it is. Scott would know because Scott's closer to it than me. But um, were it to happen, I think it'd be quite an exciting thing. I remember the, the Birmingham Super Prix back in the day um, being actually showstoppers. Actually, they, they were very exciting moments for for, for UK motorsport and Formula E. Still, you know, it's an attractive and growing championship. And I think if you could do something like that in a in a major UK city, um, it, it, it could only be good. And it's it's, it's sad that Formula e doesn't have a, a UK round at the moment. So you know, I think I think it'd be very widely supported by the racing community here were it to go ahead
2: well it was originally proposed as as one of the options to replace the cancelled montreal race but we now know that montreal is not going to be replaced at all however formulary has said it has evaluated interesting alternatives that's what it's referred to its options as and it will continue to consider these for the future so there's every every reason to think that maybe birmingham will be on the calendar in the future even if it's not for this season bringing back the super Prix uh, for electric cars is something that was actually I believe included in one local politicians manifesto when they ran for local uh, for the local government um, earlier this year so um, or last year so I can't quite remember so it's obviously something that locally is is in some circles uh, being pushed for it's, it's very possibly something that could could continue uh, to to be an option in the next couple of years because this is the thing the absence of a British round is is big, considering everyone else that's on the calendar. The problem is they're... Holding out almost for this London, mythical London race on a like right in the city streets, goes past Buckingham Palace and the like, and it's a nice idea, and they've got you know a degree of support for it. But actually pulling off is it doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. So what do you do? Do you put re- the prospects of a British race on hold indefinitely, just in the hope that you might get this mega London race in next year, three years, five years, ten years down the line? Britain needs to be on the calendar. It's been a, a key part of Formula E's history from the beginning. And Alejandro Gag said in the summer that there were one or two venues they would they were considering. Birmingham's obviously one of them. They also considered races at. Brands Hatch and Donington Park, they were considering permanent venues. So uh, may, maybe, maybe Britain will return to the Formula e calendar
1: sooner rather than later. And, and if it does, it'll the series will be all the better for it. I think this illustrates a really interesting point, which is, I mean, if you look at Montreal as well, that the reason that's fallen off the calendar essentially is because of a change of mayor in the city. And that's also what happened with Battersea, effectively. Um, and this this sort of political aspect that Formula E has to deal with in order to get races on cities, in city streets, on city circuits, is something I don't think other other race series have to deal with in quite the same way, because in general they race at race at permanent circuits which are set up for motor racing. So this particular challenge for Formula E is one that doesn't go away. And speaking to Alejandro at the weekend. About that he says oh it's just it's just part of the business but i'm sure it must actually cause him quite a few sleepless nights because you have a, a calendar set up with you know montreal major world city as one of your showcase events and it, it just gets cancelled two months or well three months four months out and that's that's going to be a, a major problem if that happened in formula one races getting cancelled you know it's big news it's massive banner news you know championship in crisis formula Three seems to be able to adapt with this and, and cope with it pretty well but it, it, it's it's a real challenge that it has to to get around all the time.
2: It's something of a necessary evil. Um, it's the best draw of the championship is the fact that it races in the heart of these major world cities. And by the same token, cities change, governments change, uh, priorities change, locals protest, that sort of thing. So you kind of have well, to be well, flexible. That's, well,
0: that's the key thing, isn't it? Unlike, sometimes you get races that have government support that are on permanent circuits, and there's a financial cost to it, attached to it. But in this case, it's all the disruption that's created, as you saw with Battersea. It's not just people complaining about money being spent it's it's all those problems that are created, so it's always on the agenda isn't it for for any local slash regional government yeah,
2: you complain like one of the things you complain about motorsport is it often doesn't take it to the people and it's difficult to find and then you have these races that take motorsport to the people, and the people moan about it, maybe with the only ones that care, maybe the catchment for the catchment group for for motorsport is a lot smaller than than people hope for. If you throw it in their face and disrupt their daily lives, but you know, I I, I mean, I hate this expression, but it kind of is what it is for Formula E, and they and they do roll with it. I suspect its medium term future, maybe its short term future, is to have a few more semi permanent venues or urban based racetrack venues that to to replace this all street circuit calendar just because to give it a bit of flex, uh, to give it a bit of continuity sorry being reactive so often isn't good for the long-term health of the championship kind of has to contend with it at the moment but it does need to do something to sort of give
1: it a bit of stability in the long term. On that point something interesting that came up at the weekend there's um, a lot of talk now about the season five car this so-called Batmobile style car which could be significantly faster, certainly in a straight line. Some of the testing data appears to indicate that'll be the case, and this figure of 300 kilometres an hour has been bandied around. If that is to happen, if the the Season 5 cars are this quick, then the nature of Formula 1 being all street circuit might have to change anyway because the street circuits that are currently used simply wouldn't be able to deal with the speeds of the cars that are racing on them. So that might be another reason for a slight drift away to perhaps permanent circuits being... Part of what Formula E is not as its core, core rounds, but an aspect of the championship.
2: Yeah, exactly. I th- think that is. I think that is right. And we'll wait and see what the actual um, pace and speed of the car is because it's well and good saying that it's got a top speed of this, but obviously then when you gear it for a for a street circuit, how close will it actually be to that number, and will that give it flexibility? I don't know. So let's wait, wait and see on that on that score. But I do think that going beyond just uh, temporary street circuits is an absolute must for formulary and one of the things i thought was quite cool was um autosport.com editor glenn freeman popped a video of the the practice race uh, at donington park before the first ever formulary race in beijing uh, back in 2014 um he put popped a video of it into the st- into the Birmingham story on autosport.com and it's the first time I've ever seen that video. I've heard about the race, the two races that they did as a practice. I've heard about a very funny crash as well that happened at the end of it after the flag. Um, But I've never seen the video for myself and actually having watched it, watching those cars that are considerably slower then than they are now... Actually, it's very entertaining. Like, they don't look out of place on the... Like, obviously, I've watched them test at Donington Park and Valencia on proper circuit. So, I know that they're fine on there. But in race trim, they actually look quite good as well. So, that video actually single-handedly changed my mind. I thought it would look really crap if they went to Donington Park or Brands Hatch or something like that. Now, I'd actually be quite quite fevered up by it. The talk about the
1: Season 5 car is quite exciting, If you know from what we hear with the, the word going around. I think it's going to launch at the end of the month, is that right? Yeah, a digital uh, launch and then a proper one in uh, Geneva. Geneva Munch show, yeah. You know, obviously it's the championship, so they would be talking that, wouldn't they? But, you know, it's it's a more powerful battery. Cars seem to be faster. um, Further powertrain developments from the teams. And, you know, there's quite a bit of buzz about how quick the season five car will be. So. Yeah, you know, I think it's quite an ex- another quite exciting moment for the championship.
2: They're also really happy with sort of the technical developments that have happened from the McLaren battery side because I think there was worries about a year ago that things might not be ready in time, they hadn't had all the info and stuff like that and now actually they're like we probably this is probably a, we're in much better shape at, uh, now in January 2018 than we thought we'd
0: be this time last year. Well, the great thing is, I think, about Formula E is the fact that stuff's moving quickly. People complain in other forms of motorsport about how stagnant things are, notably Formula One. Now, the downside of Formula E is much of the innovation is in what might be called black box components, you know, a battery. is a battery to, to people. If you look at it, it doesn't; it's not a different shape like a new wing or whatever, but it's, it's great that, that things are moving on so quickly and, indeed, the, the calendar evolves, the type of tracks, the type of championship it
1: is It's keep evolving. It, it's fascinating to see that aspect of Formula E, though, which is collegiate, if you like, still. So yes, it's competitive. Yes, everybody wants to win and their team's actively racing against each other like in any championship. But the aspect of all working together for the greater good of the series is still very apparent and it's refreshing and welcome. Um, I just am very intrigued to see how long it lasts when, when you know there's a drift towards more manufacturers now Porsche, BMW, all these guys are going to win, are going to want to win to justify their budgets even though the budgets are smaller than than you know Formula 1's extreme example. They will still want to win and be seen to win. So when that happens that pressure might change the mood I think in the atmosphere somewhat.
2: Well, if you want an example, another example of just how popular the series is and 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 how excited people are about the future, just have a look at the quality of the driver entry for the rookie test. On the Sunday, the mm. day after the race, you had you know Formula One linked drivers, ex Formula One drivers, aspiring Formula One drivers, all desperate to get in the Formula E car, and you know teams had to turn drivers
0: away. There was there was, there was that much interest. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? That the fact that these drivers are seriously looking at it. now. There were some big name drivers: Antonio Giovinazzi, Paul DeResta both appeared in F1 as race drivers last year. Daniel Gadella, Pietro Fittipaldi were among the more recognizable names. But who who impressed you in that test? Is there a driver or two who you think yeah, based on what they did there? This is someone that needs to be in a Formula E race seat. The obvious one was Nico Muller, because he broke the lap record. The DTM race winner, of
2: course. D- yeah. Um, and he is the problem the problem was I, I mean, I maybe I got I got a little bit of stick, I felt, from a couple of people for not getting too excited about Muller's new lap record. He was a tenth faster. Very good. He was the only he was nine tenths quicker than anyone else on the day, but he was only a tenth faster than the lap record that had been set the day before by Daniel Apt, who the regular driver of Muller's Audi's on on the Saturday, the track, uh, Formula E track, on day two of running, traditionally improves by between half a second and a second. So I actually didn't think it was like it was good. I didn't think it was like as astonishing as the fact that it was a lap record made it look. Um, but he his program was the easiest to judge because it was so aggressive. He did so many laps, so many like proper full on stints in his cars. Um, and then he said that his run at the end of that under the day was a proper how fast can I make this thing go lap. Then the the, the massive gap to the others suggests that he's the only one who really got that Um, but just sort of trying to have a look at the numbers and compare how they did to their teammates Maximilian Gunter did very well at Dragon former um, three ace race yeah absolutely um, and you know he's got Andrea Caldarelli in the other car Caldarelli crashed in the morning Gunter didn't Caldarelli was also quick Gunther was three to temps faster than him course, over one Cal- lap. Held a
0: rally way back in the midst of times a Toyota F1 junior, wasn't
2: he? Yeah, and, and you know he's a, I think he's Blancpain champion as well alongside and Lamborghini, and a Super GT driver. So he's quite, clearly good. Um, De Resta, I mean, I'm surprised Fittipaldi outpaced De Resta. I think Pietro's done done quite well there, but De also not quite delivered on his first proper push lap as well. Um, Joel Eriksson. Matched Antonio, yet, matched Antonio Giovanazzi uh, DS Virgin, so you have to say that Ericsson's done the better of the two there in terms of reputation and what you'd expect. Um, and Alex Albon who didn't trouble the timesheets at all because he was focused on a load of mammoth race runs in the afternoon, looks considerably better than uh, Mitsunuri Takaboshi, the Nissan Japanese Formula 3 champion that Renault was testing. So Albon acquitted himself quite well. It's really difficult a test is really difficult to judge people on as it is but then when you've got the added added variable of different levels of experience on the on on the entry list anyway for the test and then also different levels of formulae experience within that experience because a couple of the drivers have done tests before the rookie test was basically available to anyone who doesn't have a formulae race license but that didn't exclude people who have done private testing for teams and stuff like that so and then you've obviously got different programs and some teams made it really clear to the drivers don't you dare think about pushing this to the limit because we can't afford you to put it in the wall and then others like Muller was told go out there have some fun see what you can do with it so really tricky to judge but there were definitely some highlights in there
0: saying all that Scott uh, I'm giving you a, a theoretical Formula E team and you're allowed to say two names of the two drivers from that rookie test that you would sign if you had to decide right now based on what you know now oh damn no equivocation okay two names
2: um I would go with Joel Erickson, and I would pair him with Paul deresta
0: Bit of bit of rising star and experience. Yeah,
2: I think so. I think you get that little mix. I think you've got someone like Resta who's got so much recent single-seater ex- experience. I was, in, in my head, for what it's worth, I, my uh, my reserve driver would be Gary Paffitt, because Paffitt was the one I was considering with Paul Resta. Paffitt drove for Venturi in the test, didn't trouble anyone on full power runs, because that wasn't his intention, but he definitely seemed to like fit in well with the team and really enjoyed enjoyed the day and obviously his experience with McLaren and Williams in Formula One and obviously known quantity from DTM so you got a guy there who would who would do a good job as my reserve
0: well thanks very much for your insights into Formula E Scott Mitchell the next race is on 3rd of February where will you be heading? Santiago Chile that's going to be an interesting one new
2: circuit yeah new circuit new race heard a couple of rumours about you know how ready the race actually is so it'll be quite fun to see what's waiting for me on the thursday setup day is always a little bit hectic i think it'll be even more so for this one
0: remember to keep an eye on autosport.com for all the latest news and information on formula e f1 the whole world of motorsport check out autosport magazine out this thursday which will have scott's excellent report on how felix rosenquist emerged as a 2017-18 race winner was it was it a 10-point plan yeah, ten point, so yeah, ten point method. So if you want more information about that and his methodology, head towards Sport Print Mag. Also check out F1 Racing magazine, which Anthony Rollinson here is responsible
1: for. On sale today. Excellent. What's on the cover? Max Verstappen, how he will electrify Formula One with a full lightning sparks treatment and a max power cover line. If you're just if you're all about electric
0: now.
2: All electric. If you're a fan of the Max Power Simpsons episode, buy it for the cover line, just that alone.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Another Simpsons reference from uh, from Scott Mitchell. He's very fond of those. Well, thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast.